ladies and gentlemen, and IoT professionals everywhere out there in the uh, in the world listening to this podcast. You are listening to Real World IoT, powered by 151 Advisors. I am Ken Briota, your host for this episode and this podcast, and we're very happy to have all of you out there listening. Uh, here on uh, Real World IoT, we try to strip the varnish off of the, the discussions about IoT technology and really dig into real-world applications, uh, address real-world problems, and uh, uh, make sure that we're you know keeping it real-world IoT, as I and no one else likes to say. But uh, we're happy to have all of you out, out there listening to us. And uh, my guest today, I'm very happy to have uh, Danny Royer of the Bowles Farming Company. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about IoT and agriculture. Danny, how are you today? I am doing fantastic. Nice to be here this morning. It's very nice to have you. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your, your day-to-day work at, at Bowles and, and your background? Yeah, so uh, my role at Bowles, I'm the Vice President of Technology, and uh, my primary uh, focus is, is integrating technologies into the everyday operations. So spend a lot of time looking at uh, different types of solutions, uh, whether they're software or hardware, um, and then how to integrate those into kind of the everyday things that we're doing on our farm. Our farm uh, is about 12,000 acres. It's a fairly contiguous ranch, so it's all in one place. And uh, we sit kind of right in the center of California's Central Valley. Farm about 21 different crops. Uh, most of the farm is irrigated with uh, what we call subsurface drip irrigation. So we irrigate with tubes under the ground every 60 inches um, is our bed spacing, and then the t- tubes are about 12 inches underground. Uh, we, yeah, so we, we, we are very busy. Um, we're right in the middle of our heavy planting season. Um, today, I think we're probably have. Uh, and then we have at least four different transplanting crews transplanting processing tomatoes and on the farm. Um, we we primarily grow processing tomatoes and cotton. Um, those are our two biggest crops. Uh, and our, our cotton is kind of unique, and it's one of the things that we like to talk about in that it, we, we're using some DNA tracing technology uh, to actually create complete transparency throughout the supply chain in, in fiber. Um, so, you know, cotton fiber. So something unique that, that we're doing. Um, but uh, relative to IoT, uh, man, we have all sorts of fun things going on, whether it's, you know, temperature sensors in bat houses for some of our environmental projects. Um, I got a bunch of people with iPads and iPhones running around on the farm. We have dozens of soil moisture sensors and valve actuators that uh are now in place on the farm. So we, we have a, a lot of different uh, things out there that are connected. Um, and one of the, the greatest challenges with that is kind of figuring out how to manage all of those connections. Sure. So uh, that's, that's a lot of a quick summary of kind of where we're at and probably where our biggest challenges are. So, um, I'm not sure if everybody knows this, but they should. The Central Valley of California is, uh, I believe, the largest producer of uh, agricultural products in the U.S. Uh, as a whole. It's a huge source of our of our farming. Specialty, most, yeah, mostly specialty crops. You know, we aren't growing the wheat, corn, and soy that you know you have big big swaths of in the Midwest, but most of your nuts, fruits. 
um, things like that are, are definitely coming from California. And I think most people already knew that most of the nuts come from California. <laughs> 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 um, uh, I say this is a great lover of California, uh, even if I do live on the <laughs> other coast. Um, but uh, I, I'm curious about, before we dig into sort of the specific executions that you guys are working on, uh, how prevalent is using technology to solve agricultural problems for like your neighbors and other farmers in the area. Um, is this becoming more and more common to explore these options or is it still sort of in the early adopter phase? You know, we're, we're definitely early adopters. Um, I think that's a, a great way to preface the conversation too is um, we're, we're definitely in that top 5% of early adopters. Uh, I think that there's some just challenges with just simple things like how to use an iPhone or, um, you know, trusting the digital sheet versus the trusted piece of paper that you've used your entire career to, to track what, what you need to track. So I think there's some real cultural challenges um, for, for tech and ag, and there's probably a lag in adoption because of that. But I'll, I also know that, you know, the, uh, the overwhelming majority of management level or higher people in agriculture are 55 and over and you're going to see a big influx of that changing in the next 10 years and that's going to be replaced with people that are very very familiar with you know technology yeah. and um, have it already immersed in their lives so yeah i think ag's on the verge of a big big uh boost in in adoption that's cool i uh i have a, a little bit of personal uh uh perspective there is I have some uh good friends that I occasionally work for that are uh a family farm near where I live that primarily do uh Christmas trees in the the winter season and uh, berries and stuff in the the mm-hmm. summer season and wine all most of the year uh they they do a, a variety of of grapes and, and stuff and um as the the family sort of generation has changed they've started integrating more and more uh, technology right. into into the process, so it's been interesting for me to watch. Um, but uh, um, so it seems like that is going to be something that just changes as the the younger generation takes over the the farms from the the older generation. And as and family. as the technology gets better, I mean, there's a lot of folks out there that had you told me ten years that ago they would be interacting with iPhones and, and <laughs> really taking advantage of the technology, I would have thought you're crazy, but there's a lot of people, even the older generations are starting to, to jump on board, especially I think the smartphone thing is just, there's so many conveniences that come with it. If you'll just embrace it, that, uh, you know, it's hard to kind of yeah. continue to be a stick in the mud when it's that <laughs> obvious. Well, I mean, just, and now I, I, I'm going to pivot here beautifully because you've given me quite an opening. Uh, just thinking about the business case for it is, is a huge piece of the, the equation for uh, a farmer at any scale, I would think, because just in the idea of the uh, water use and water management, obviously right. a huge part of any agricultural operation. I don't care if you're doing animals or plants. Your management of water right. is a big deal. And uh, if, you can, if you can get even single percentage increase in efficiency, and I expect you'll tell me that you get much better than that, uh, is going to be a huge deal over the course of a, a growing season or a year, right? Right. So, That's an, an, oh, go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. 
I was going to say, and I think that like just using continuing on that smartphone, what most of us as growers are doing is we're making decisions all day. And a lot of times we're having to use the information that we store in our head to make those decisions. And the more you can create a network of, of information in that smartphone for a grower that gives them the data they need to make better decisions. I mean, that's where, yeah, there's a lot of great things in automating and saving labor and doing that. But I really think where we're, we're going to see the big booms in, in, in ag is decision-making and becoming a lot better decision-makers. Not that we aren't doing a great job today, right? but better information can lead to better decisions. I always hesitate to say will lead to better decisions because, you know, people be dumb, but, (laughs) but sometimes uh, if you, if you have good analytics and you, you look at your data properly, you can make a decision that you didn't even know would have been a better decision just based on, on anecdotal experience. You don't always get the full picture that way. And I think that's such an important lesson that we're getting slowly in the industrial manufacturing supply chain world, but it's good to hear that that's starting to happen also in such an important industry as as farming, Uh, not just to the IoT, but to everyone. I like to eat. I don't know how everybody else feels about it, but uh, (laughs) Um, the other thing that that, uh, on a a high level that I was hoping to pick your brain about is um, I have a very... uh, optimistic outlook about IoT technology in general. I think that it uh, has the potential over an, if given enough time and investment in the proper areas to really transform the way humans interact with the planet and each other and, and make societal changes easier. Things like uh, better energy management or uh, getting uh, you know power from places where it's easy to generate, like the Sahara, to places where it's hard to generate, like where I live. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and doing that in a way where you don't lose 25% of the, you know, or 50% of the right. energy generated, that kind of thing. And I think the IoT can give us a lot of a leg up in that arena. And I think one of the major places where that can happen is with agriculture, with food. It's fair. It's fairly easy compared to other places in the world to grow food in California's Great Central Valley or the Midwest of the U.S. or the Great Western uh, uh, steppes or Eastern steppes of Russia. You know, places the big right. bread baskets of the world. It's easy to grow things there that people can eat. But you know, most people don't actually live there, so you have to get it someplace. And and so, I'm interested in your thoughts and and experience on the idea of technology to make farming not only more productive, but more ecological and more uh, an integrated part of the supply chain and how, what you've seen in that arena. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, I think that that's actually where the most opportunity when you talk about the food system, not so much production ag. I spent a couple of years um, working for a large uh, food processor processing a raw product and um, was very engaged in that supply chain. Uh, and so there's, there's opportunities just in logistics, um, but then there's also opportunities in relationships. Um, I think a lot of the food system from, from where I sit is built on uh, relationships between buyers and sellers. And uh, because farmers are so focused on production, they, they have now offset that relationship piece by hiring somebody else. So you have third parties now that do the relationship building, you know, the brokers in the middle. Right, right. And, and, I, and I think where you're going to see some interesting things happening um, from both a, a, it's an sustainability dash 
traceability to create accountability. Um, uh, yeah. cause I think there's a lot of sustainability movements out there that are great, but the, the level of accountability and traceability in those systems is kind of off. And there's a, a lot of assumptions that are being made today. Okay. So I think that you're going to see, uh, a, a shift in that broker, um, relationship between the broker and the buyer and the supplier. And you are going to see closer relationships between suppliers and uh, producers. So, um, and technology is going to be the internet of things and the ability to track something with an RFID tag, like a, a, a module of cotton from the field to the gin, uh, through the gin, you're tagging it with a, a, a DNA tag as it leaves the gin. And now you can trace that through the entire supply chain and the grower doesn't have to fill out a piece of paperwork at any point to track it. Um, or the same thing could be said for a watermelon that, we know it was harvested in this block. We put a, a RFID or we put a QR code on it when we're, when we're packing it and it goes through the entire supply chain and ends up in the grocery store and the person can scan that QR code and know exactly where it came from. That type of transparency is, is going to be very interesting to see how consumers respond to it. Cause right now it seems like consumers want it. And I, yeah. again, when you, when you create transparency like that, you, it creates an eye-opening to all the people that are in between in the supply chain. Right, right, right. And, and what we're hearing a lot right now is that consumers want sustainability, and they want traceability, but they don't want to have to pay more for it. So right now, everybody in the supply chain is pushing all of those requests to the grower. And... The right. growers, we're at a point where we, we don't have any more to give. Well, right. The margins so, are pretty tight already. We don't have any more to give, so we're looking at these technology components as a tool for us to leverage to say, suppliers, you guys want what we have, but there's these people in the middle that are taking the, the, the meat that is left in profits, and are they really necessary? Yeah. And and if we can give you data that really says we're doing what we say we're doing, you have transparency on how we're operating, that's where the trust in our relationship is found. You don't need that broker to be the relationship piece anymore. You let the data and the technology be the relationship and build the trust. And And so I think that when you look at food and how food systems work, so much of those relationships are built on a human-to-human interaction. But I think that trust is going to shift to a data focused interaction. And that's where you're going to see massive disruptions in, in how food is moved from one place to another. Um, sure. It's going to be much more direct. What, um, and I don't want to get too far afield here because I do want to talk about what you guys are doing specifically, but mm-hmm. how much does, does the sort of vertical city farming mo- movement, and obviously that's heavily enabled by IoT and all that stuff, inform this idea of sustainability and cutting out the middleman as you suggest of the of the broker and and keeping costs managed that way affect your thinking and the industry in general i think when you look at it from the metrics that that i've understood of vertical farming i have some questions on initial inputs so it Mm -hmm. costs money to build facilities it costs money to do these things it costs money for power lots Um, (laughs) lots of money for all those (laughs) and and so I do have some sustainability questions related to that, but from a productivity standpoint, 
I've definitely looked at, well, maybe we need to go vertical on our 12,000 acres at some point because we do have really good water resources. We have the things that, that maybe aren't going to be as prevalent everywhere else sure. or even in urban centers. Maybe that's an, I mean, we've definitely thought of, you know, well, someday 25 years down the road from now, maybe we're going to start building vertical farms out here because the productivity metrics are just, you can't deny the fact that you can get three or four times as much productivity in an indoor facility on a lot of crops, especially fresh produce, than you can outdoors. Right. Um, and, and you can automate it with robots, and control <laughs> the environment, and create optimums. I mean, it's 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 hard to deny the truth. Sure. And I mean, I um, uh, I visited one in New Jersey uh, a few months ago, and uh, you know they were saying that they are essentially the largest farm in the world if you were to spread them out for flat acreage kind of thing, and uh, uh, they were primarily growing lettuce at the time. But you know, it's. Uh, it's just it's really such an interesting thing. I think that it's it's never going to be an either or question. It's always going to be a uh, an and question. And how do they yep. how do the two types of farming work together? Um, yep. But uh, I think it sort of informs the point that you were making before about getting the the food closer to the people who are going to eat it uh, and in the most efficient and cost effective way as possible. Right. Um, but now let's uh, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about about uh, bowls and and what you guys mm-hmm. are doing specifically. Uh, what uh, let's start with water, I guess, because that's sort of what we've touched on a bunch. What are you guys doing mm-hmm. in terms of measuring and and monitoring water use and and intake and that sort of thing? So we have, uh, you know, we're already pretty. You know, water is a relative subject. So relative to the rest of the world, I'd say that you know we're already pretty darn advanced in that our our drip irrigation systems, um, you know, we can micromanage them down to 10, 15 acre sets. We can program them all at a station. Um, And, you know, we, 10 years ago, what took four acre feet to to grow a crop to now, you know, two and a half acre feet, and we're getting 40, 50% more production um, at the same time. So water-wise, we've already done a really good job in California, um, what we're forced to. But uh, what we're doing to go to the next level where we think the next, you know, 15 to 30 percent water savings opportunity is is um, being much more granular in how we manage the timing of irrigation. So in order to do that, you, you need information to tell you when you need things on and off. So we're looking at different types of sensors, different types of soil moisture sensors, uh, different types of you know, drone imagery, satellite imagery, uh, and then, you know, even, even some stationary cameras to put together the, the, the algorithm that says this is when we want water on, this is when we want water off, depending on the crop. Um, right. Right now we're really, we're, we're focusing on our cotton because it's a, a big crop for us. Um, so the other side of that is you need to have a control mechanism that can respond once you know that you need to turn something on or off. And then you probably also need to have some sort of mechanism to validate that things are on and off. So we're in the process now of kind of building those systems and building the logic that's going to feed those systems. It's mm-hmm. kind of more in an R&D level right now, but I have a 120-acre pistachio field that we're doing variable rate irrigation on where we've actually zoned out 
the, the infrastructure for the irrigation system based on what the soil types in the field were. We have a lot of soil variability. Interesting. So we'll be able to irrigate, and then we have a sensors in each zone and actuators in each zone, and we're able to turn things on and off based on when, when the demand is really there right. instead of aggregating across the whole field. That's, that's so then, really cool. Uh, we have another probably about 800 acres that are now, um, we have valve control, uh, and, and soil moisture sensors. So we have a soil moisture sensor coupled with a valve controller where we're using the soil moisture sensor data to, to help us you know, decide when to turn things on and off. We haven't gotten to full automation yet um, in terms of you know, the schedule. Also, because you still want to use ET and use other environmental factors. So you're going to have a base schedule, but then you also have your soil profile that you want to factor in. So there's still a lot of logic that needs to be developed because we're taking a lot more data sets to make a decision than has been used before. Okay. Um, traditionally, you've kind of used an ET-based based system, and then maybe you're kind of using the soil moisture sensor to validate it. Now we're taking you know, a lot of data in both of those realms and, and trying to figure out which one do we want to give more weight, where do our thresholds lie. Um, you know, the soil might be saying that we're, we're perfectly full, but the ET is saying that we need to be irrigating a whole lot more in those moments, what are we going to do when the two data sets aren't aligning um, in demand? So, uh, but we're putting in the infrastructure to make it happen. I think that's the, the, the big piece is that we've made the investment and uh, to, to have the ability to do these things. And we're working with really good partners too. I think that's another key for us is that sure. we found different partners that, that we really, we have good values alignment and, you know, some are more established than others. And it's a, uh, it's been a good experience all the way around for us in the irrigation telemetry side um, right now. Uh, That's cool. Very excited to see what we what we come up with this year. How much of it is automated at this point, or is that sort of a, a part of the future project? So um, full automation, um, none. Uh, we still have a delivery system from our from the. So we have surface water deliveries through okay. a, a provider, and so oh, the right. canal. Not all of our canals are live yet, so we can't have full automation. Um, we do on our pistachios. Our pistachios will be fully automated um, going into this, this summer. Actually, okay. I take that back. We will have full automation in the pistachios. So the, uh, the sensor our, will trigger the actuator, which will say, all right, water this section for half an hour or whatever. And then... This, Plus, there will be an ET factor. So this is what weather is saying we should irrigate based on the crop type, based on the crop stage. This is how much you, we think you should be irrigating. But the soil moisture sensor is saying that you have plenty of moisture in the ground at the levels that you want it. So we're going to cut back what the ET is saying. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah, how much of that... Uh how much of your process, I mean, obviously a lot of your process is informed by weather prediction, but, you know, you have to be fairly nimble, I expect, because about half the time they're going to be wrong about what they predict. So, <laughs> our, yeah, our biggest issue is just temperatures. Um, okay. Um, we, don't, we don't get much rain. That's right. actually, you know, a lot of people talk about California being so great because of our water resources. It's actually the fact that it doesn't rain from basically now till... October, November, that's, that's the real value in, in California. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's, uh, so, that's uh, tough, yeah. Our ET schedules actually, for the most part, you know, from a monthly aggregation standpoint, we can get fairly 
consistent. And, and I will say that things are getting warmer. Uh, there is a, t- a warming trend. So, uh, we do, we do know that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I think that for us, because of the variability that we have in our soils, um, and how much of a role that plays in how we should be irrigating, I'm not necessarily thinking that we're going to maybe cut irrigation a lot, Okay. but, or in terms of total applied water, it's going to be how we're applying it. So if we're in a sandy soil situation where water leaches substantially faster, we're probably going to be irrigating less, like shorter lengths of irrigation more often versus if we have a heavy soil where we can fill that profile up, the water's not going to leach. It's going to stay there. Maybe we're going to run the longer set and we're going to run those sets less often. I see. Um, so apart from water, are you exploring uh, things like, you know, uh, measuring for harvest or a, a, any of the other sort of sensor applications for IoT at this point? Yeah, we've got a couple of drones that we fly around to do different things. I think the, the biggest thing that I see or most immediate value that I see is, um, you know, our farm, like I said, we have a lot of these drip irrigation systems that are underground. And when there's leaks and you uh, need to go fix them, it can become very expensive um, for lab- labor-wise. Right. So we're we're actually hoping this summer we're going to be able to work with some partners to develop um, the machine learning capabilities that the drone can fly, identify where the wet spots are in the field, where the leaks are. Yep. Um, this would be phase one. Phase two would be quantify them and then generate a work order that gives our irrigators the exact location where the leaks are and sends them to the biggest leaks first. I see. Okay. That's cool. Um, yeah, I've we're, seen I've seen some interesting drone inspection stuff happening, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, oil and gas uses them all the time. And and uh, there's a a company that's working with um, the, with GE on automating those inspection patterns. Um, yep. For for the, the the case I saw was for gas. Uh, you know the the burn off towers because obviously they require a lot of inspection and repair on a frequent basis. Um, it, anything with fixed infrastructure, like a drone, is the way to inspect it because if it's the same thing over and over, you can teach the machine. It, it, it's you have the same data set over and over and over, so it just becomes really easy to teach machines what to look for. That's, that's awesome. the challenge we have with with machine learning in ag is that you know. The, the crops are changing pretty continuously, so you, you need sensor continuous data sets, and it's just hard to collect data. Like farmers are not the <laughs> most open people. Yeah. So I, I that's why it's you know drones taking off and the, the the oil and gas sector makes absolute sense. It's fixed infrastructures for the most part. Very easy to to teach a neural network or to set up a neural network to learn like, hey, this is what we want to see. So if you don't see this, give me an alert. Yeah. That's how how long before we start seeing uh uh Fidos farm data officers <laughs> on every farm. <laughs> um I mean, I think that that could be to some degree kind of what I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I do on the farm, um I actually have a technology engineer who I would say is more um more so that person than me. He's much more um data savvy than I am. Mm-hmm. Uh but I think that that's that's an interesting point. I think um, it's actually something that I'm going to go to the California Agriculture Teachers Association conference this June to talk to them about the yeah. competency shift that's happening on farms and computer science is 
is in huge, huge need on farms. We have sure. disparate data sets all over the place that need to be chopped up and put together in an organized fashion. Yep. <laughs> I was at uh, uh, SAS Global Forum uh, a couple of weeks ago in uh, in Denver, and there was a bunch of uh, talk about agriculture and data there. Uh, it was pretty interesting. Um, pretty interesting stuff and, and pretty exciting. Unfortunately, we're getting near the end of our time here. As much as I'd, I'd love to continue uh, <laughs> digging into this stuff forever, <laughs> what didn't I think to ask you because I don't know enough to ask you the question? Like, what's If you wanted to leave everybody with a thought. Um, the thought that I would leave is that uh, we're in 10 years, farming is going to look nothing like it looks like today. And, and things that we think are going to happen 10 years from now are going to be very different. I don't think anybody can really predict today what 10 years is going to look like on a farm. Yeah, I, I think... I think that's true of a lot of industries, uh, not just because of the IoT, but because of you know everything, things that are going to directly affect farms like climate change and, and whatnot, but also any number of, of other factors uh, over the next 10 years are going to be uh, transformative Fun. for many, thing, many things. I think uh, we're in for some interesting times to uh, yes. apocryphally not quote anyone who ever said that. But <laughs> <laughs> Um, how can folks find out more about, about you and about the Bulls Farming Company? So for me on Twitter and Instagram, you can find me at at Ag Tech Leader. Um, and then our Bulls, we have at Bulls Farming. Um, we're on Facebook and Instagram. And then our website is www.bfarm.com. All right. And uh, that'll all go in the show notes, of course. Um, folks, uh, make sure that if you're looking for more insights and uh, uh, into how you can add IoT to improve your business operations in farming and everywhere else in uh, in the world, uh, make sure you visit 151advisors.com or check them out on Twitter at 151advisors. There's a lot going on there uh, then, uh, that, that you should be keeping up with. Um, I, I believe we're running out of time, but thank you so much for listening. Please remember to subscribe, leave us uh, comments, likes, and, and upvotes wherever it is that you listen to this on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or uh, just stream it across the uh, worldwide interwebs. And uh, uh, thank you so much, Danny, for being my guest today. Really appreciate it. For sure. Thank you. I've been Ken Briota, your host. Have a great day, and thank you for joining us. Well, folks, thank you for listening to this episode of Real World IoT powered by 151 Advisors. Make sure you go online to check out more content on how you can monetize the connected world at 151advisors.com. That's 151advisors.com for all the information and content like this podcast that will help you power your business and monetize your business into the next phase of the IoT. Thank you again for listening to Real World IoT powered by 151 Advisors. I am your host, Ken Briota, signing off. See you next time.